Well, on September 8th of uh, just this past year, not just the United Kingdom, but the entire world had to embrace the reality that Queen Elizabeth II, uh, the 70-year reigning monarch of England, had abdicated the throne simply by stepping into eternity. And what followed were days of tributes and videos and memorials, all which led up to uh, her funeral, which was one of those closely uh, followed and most widely watched television broadcasts in all of history. And now in just a few weeks, I imagine uh, the world will again tune in uh, to see King Charles III uh, at his coronation as he will be officially coronated as the king. And in a ceremony marked by incredible pomp and circumstance, there's an announcement that is given, an oath that will be uh, taken. There will be the anointing of oil by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then the investiture uh, where the newly coronated King Charles will be given the royal orb and the scepter, and the crown will be placed upon his head. Now, for us, even here in the United States, we've got to admit that we've got a fascination with royalty. Despite our protests by dumping all their tea into uh, the harbor, we'd still have to say there's a fascination that exists. I guess we just didn't want to be ruled by royalty here. But we'd all admit that there's something awe-inspiring about a king, Now, let's imagine if I were to take just a quick flight over the pond uh, this week and uh, I was to go into Westminster Abbey and to sit on the British throne. It's actually called uh, King Edward's chair. It's been used uh, for coronations for over 700 years now. And suppose I could actually get in there and get to that throne and sit down. Would it mean anything? Now, nothing would change at all for the people of England, would it? And nothing would change for me. I'd still be Pastor Todd, although I'd probably be Pastor Todd in jail in England for getting to the throne and trying to sit down. But I want to tell you, the question of your life this morning, and really not just this morning, but every day that will follow is this, who will sit on the throne of your life? Who will rule? Who will have power? Now, we're all familiar with authority. No matter who you are, there's some level of authority that you have to submit to. Kids in here, you have to submit to the authority of your parents. Students have to submit to the authority of their teachers. All employees report to a supervisor. Even if you're your own boss, there are rules and regulations and authority that you operate under. But I want you to know there's an ultimate authority One to whom everyone, no matter your age or your occupation, your status in life, your race, must answer to. Someone who has complete and total uh, reign over everything seen and unseen. I'd like to introduce you to him this morning. Now, we're going to wrap up our series in the uh, Psalms uh, this morning uh, the, the Psalms are the divinely inspired hymn book for the people of God in ancient Israel. 
The Psalms would have saturated the hearts and the minds of the people of God uh, because for them they weren't simply read, but they were sung. And even into the early church, the tradition was continued of reading and singing the Psalms, uh, and that has been our challenge to you, our faith family, that you would start a regular practice in the Psalms, not just reading them, but immersing yourself in these Psalms because they profoundly shape how you relate to God. It's amazing to me that this one book can contain such significant history. It tells the story of the people of God, but it's also rich in theology and doctrine. But what I love most about the Psalms, it's where we find our lives. It's where we learn to relate to God in how we face trials and troubles where we find comfort for our uh, emotions, where we're warned about dangers that we'll face as we navigate uh, through this life that we live. We also learn to commit ourselves to God. Tim Keller says of the Psalms, the Psalms lead us to do what the psalmists do, to commit ourselves to God through pledges and promises, to depend on God through petition and expressions of acceptance to seek comfort in God through lament and complaint, to find mercy from God through confession and repentance, to gain new wisdom and perspective from God through meditation, remembrance, and reflection. And so we'll conclude our series uh, this morning with one last category of psalms, and that would be the royal psalms. Royal meaning kingly These royal psalms emphasize God's promise that he made to David that he would sit as a king and someone from his lineage would sit as king and rule and reign over the kingdom of Israel. And so David and his descendants as kings were to bless Israel and even through Israel bless the nations of the world. These royal psalms call on God to protect His anointed king in Jerusalem, to give victory to their enemies, and then in response to God's protection and His deliverance, the king would rejoice and would continually trust and lead the people to trust in God. Now, there was a great danger, though. The great danger in the nation of Israel having uh, an earthly king was the temptation to look to that earthly king for everything they needed, for their protection and for their security and for their uh, governance instead of allowing God to be their supreme king. You see, the great king that is to be feared is God himself. He's the king the supreme king that rules and reigns over the nations of the earth, and only he is to be praised. Well, if you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn to Psalm 2, or you can follow along on the screen. Psalm 2, like I said, being a royal psalm, would have been used at the installation of any of the kings in Israel. And if you're willing and able to stand, I invite you to do that with me in honor of God's Word this morning. Psalm chapter 2, we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
And he will speak to them in his wrath and and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Heavenly Father, we turn to Your Word this morning and ask that You would speak to us through the power of Your Holy Spirit. God, we believe you have something for us, and we want to receive that uh, with tender and soft hearts so that we can grow and be formed and fashioned to become more like you, that we would order our lives the way you would have us live, that we would rightly see you as our great King. So, Father, as always, we come to your Word not merely seeking information, but we come seeking transformation, that we would be made more and more in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So here we find ourselves in the middle of this season that we call Lent. It's a 40-day period of time that uh, we marked starting with Ash Wednesday that now will culminate with Resurrection or Easter Sunday. It's a season that's meant to be focused on repentance and uh, humility And in this period, we're called to consider our sin and our human fragility in the light and the splendor of our great God and King. And Psalm 2 also gives us a great kind of picture, if you will, of what would be coming, what would take place on Holy Week. So a few truths from our text this morning. The first is this, our default position is this, we don't need a king. Really, our default position is We don't want a king. The position of our hearts from the outset is we don't want anyone ruling and reigning over us. Now, in our text this morning, the psalmist opens with a rhetorical question uh, that we all would have to ask from time to time as he's looking out over God's creation and he sees the kings and the kingdoms, all the other countries of the world. Uh, He asks this, well, why do you resist? Why, why do you rebel? Why do you fight? Why do you scheme and actively oppose the authority of the living God? And for the nation of Israel, this was a continual problem. Despite God's covenantal promise to David that he would establish his line to rule and reign over Israel, that didn't mean Israel was always going to live at peace. In fact, nations and countries would come against them and rise up against God's people, often overtaking them or even sometimes expelling them from their homeland. But even in this psalm, we can look ahead to Jesus and particularly Holy Week, where the opposition and the rebellion to Jesus was coming to a head. Jesus would be betrayed by those false religious leaders He would be falsely accused and tried and then ultimately executed on a cross. And these first few verses here remind us the sinful schemes of man will never prevail. 
God's plans can never be altered. His kingship can never be thwarted. Yet here we find ourselves thousands of years later uh, living in a culture that continues to press against the truth of who God is and most certainly revolt and rebel against His kingly authority. He's called His people, all people, on how to order their lives, and yet culture says, we don't care. We want to do life the way we want to do life. Our culture's continual quest for freedom always ends in rebellion against God. And so we feel this. And I think it's safe to say what we feel and, and understand in our culture today is that uh, complete submission to anyone in authority outside of yourself, outside of your own impulses, your own desires, your own will, it's been made completely unacceptable. Well, we have to say, well, why is that? Well, because deep down inside, we live with this mantra, no one can tell me what to do. No one's going to be my king. I am my king. Only I know what is best and right. Only I can decide what will ultimately lead to my happiness. But we have to recognize this isn't a new mindset. This has been uh, pervasive. This goes all the way back to the original temptation of our first parents, right? Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. And as the serpent comes, what does the serpent whisper to them? Did God really say? Did God really say this? Planting the seed of, well, why does he get to say? Serpent tempting us to question God's uh, authority and so he says to Adam and Eve, in essence, you don't really need or want a king, do you? You don't want to have to answer to someone else. You can be your own king. You can be the own God that's in charge of your own life, deciding what's good and not good for you. You don't need to answer or submit to God. Faith family, that temptation has plagued every single one of us ever since to protect the not-so-innocent, I won't mention a name, but one of my boys got into trouble when they were in their toddler years. Shocker, I know. <laughs> and in getting in trouble, they actually were mad at me. <laughs> and so I pulled them aside to offer them some wise uh, words of correction. And in the middle of these wise words of correction, with their arms crossed, this is what I hear. You're not the boss of me. Oh, really? <laughs> Man, we can laugh, and we can look at our culture and see they're shouting those same words, but aren't they down in your heart as well? Are they not in my heart too this morning? Are you rebellious? Are there not times where you just, I wish I could rule and reign? I want to rule and to reign, where, where you silently shout out to God because you would never do it out loud. You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. If there's a throne in my life, only I sit on that throne. And I'm going to resist and rebel against anyone who tries to tell me otherwise. So here's my challenge to you this morning. I want you to assume that you're more rebellious than you think you are. 
I want to challenge you to be suspicious of yourself when it comes to authority. And I'll be honest, if you're in here this morning and you're like, but Todd, I I want to find freedom. Well, if you want to find true freedom, then your rebellion's got to have a collision with the authority of God in such a way that He exposes your rebellion It's a collision that results in a change of heart and a change of mind, a change that only takes place when the Holy Spirit of God invades your heart and life where you're able to see your rebellion against a holy and just and right God. And then where you're able in response to bow the knee like Jesus did in the garden and pray, Father, not my will but your will be done. The same exact prayer he models for us to pray, Father, not my will, but your will be done. The second thing we see from our text this morning is our God's promise that the anointed king is coming. Did you notice God's response to this rebellion? What he thinks about this attitude from the people? God laughs. It's almost as if God is saying, oh, well, look at that. (laughs) Look at you, working up a rebellion, trying to undermine uh, my king. Well, good luck with that one, right? And then God's response in verse 6, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, it's not up for debate. I've got my champion. The throne is already occupied. Uh, My son, the anointed, the king of kings and lord of lords, is sitting comfortably in that spot. And so here in the midst of a royal psalm, uh, we actually have features that would make this a messianic psalm, pointing us to the one true Christ, the king. See, God's response to human pride and power, any rebellion to authority, is to install his son the ultimate and the final from the line of David as the rightful king. And so while this psalm is certainly uh, sobering in regards to God's judgment and wrath towards rebellion, it also offers us great hope. It points us to this future true divine son who will come to be the only true and righteous king, the one who obeyed the father perfectly, who broke free for us the yoke of sin. So listen, you will only find freedom in submitting and surrendering your life to His kingly rule. This psalm presents us with an opportunity to choose. So there are two camps presented that you can align yourselves with, those who are subversive and those who are submissive. And it's easy here to see what happens to those who are subversive against God. Their fate, the psalm shows us, is sure. But don't miss what the psalmist also shows us, the blessing available for those who are submissive. And the choice to be submissive to the king means you rightly remember that it's not your life anyways. It's not your hopes and your dreams And your days and your plans and your future and your life, those belong to the Lord. Remember what James reminds us of? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go and do such and such in a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
If you're like a a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll travel here and live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Some of the hardest funerals I've preached have been for teenagers. Some of them in this very room we find ourselves in this morning. And I understand there's challenges in embracing these words from James for all of us, no matter what stage of life we find ourselves in, but there's particular challenges in embracing them when you're young. Yet we ought to understand that in surrendering our life to the King, that our life was never our own. There is no promise of tomorrow James wisely reminds us that our life is like a mist. It's like a vapor. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Our life was never our own. What are we reminded of in 1 Corinthians 6 from Paul? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that lives in you? Your body's not your own. Why does he say this? Because you were bought with a price. Your life was paid for. It was bought by Jesus. On the cross, you you belong to Him. You rest your every moment in the palm of His hands. He ordains your life. He ordains your plans. He ordains your days. And every moment you have breath in your lungs is a gift from your great God and King. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism's answers question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What a comforting promise this morning. Have you put your trust in Christ the King? Have you put your trust in the anointed one, the Messiah? That's what Christ means, literally translated from uh, the Hebrew. He is the Messiah. But don't forget where, as the Messiah, his own submission to his Father led him. It led him to the cross. It was on that cross where he was ridiculed, remember, as a king who couldn't even save himself. And you see all throughout human history, kings and princes and tribal chiefs and rulers and presidents and dictators, they've sent their subjects to die for them. But don't miss this. Only once in human history has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead the king died for his subjects. That's our king. That's our king, Jesus. The king who introduces a kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king reigns eternally. Throughout the New Testament, the kingship of Christ defies expectation. Jesus' power outshines any ancient king, any modern king, any future king that would ever live. But it didn't come through military might. It came through emptying himself of power. It came through suffering and humiliation and even death on the cross. We'll actually gather in a few weeks to celebrate Jesus' death on that cross. 
But the cross is crucial for us to see, not just on Good Friday or on Easter Sunday, but every day. Because you and I, we cannot understand the depth of our rebellion until we see our rebellion at the foot of the cross. What are we seeing? It was our sin that kept him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has given us life. Praise God, what a Savior and King. The third thing this morning, we see our changed perspective, that our our King is a place of refuge. So what should be the right response then to His kingship? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He says, serve, submit, surrender, Put your life in His hands. He's the only one capable of leading and guiding your life. And because Christ accomplished His mission on earth, He could definitively say, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And so what do we do? We submit ourselves to that authority. We submit ourselves to His reign and His rule. We serve Him with all of our heart, and in Him we find our refuge. There's a story told of a king who was in his throne room. He had gathered all his counsel with him, his leaders, his uh, noblemen, his advisors, his high ministers of state. And suddenly there was a a banging at the door and a clattering that was taking uh, place. And all eyes turned as the door flung wide open and this young boy runs into the room. And one of the king's guardsmen tries to uh, stop the boy and says, Hold there, lad, he, he shouted. Do you know you're disturbing the counsel of the king? The young boy laughing said, He's your king, but he's my daddy. <laughs> and the boy bounced into the open arms of his father, the king. That's us. Isn't it amazing that we can find audience with the king? That the king has, has humbled himself and come to us so that we could find audience, adoption into his family. King Jesus has welcomed you into his family through his death on the cross. And what a place of refuge it is. But that refuge is only found through submission. In its original context, in verse 12, we saw this phrase, kiss the son. What refers to this act of obedience, to kiss the, the, the ring, if you will, the hand, even the feet of a ruler, uh, was an act of deference and submission. But it was also to show the king your delight and your homage. It was to show him your affection. But again, it's a choice. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, the only safe place from the wrath of God is in God. Everywhere outside his care is dangerous. The only hiding place from his own, he is the only hiding place from his own wrath. If you see him as, a, as frightening and try to run away and hide, you will not find a place to hide. There is none. Outside of God's care, there is only wrath, but there is a refuge from the wrath of God. Namely, God. It's Him. The safest place from the wrath of God, the only safe place is God. That's where we run. Remember in the New Testament, 
this woman takes place in a home, is kneeling at the feet of Jesus in great worship, pouring out this expensive perfume, wiping it on his feet, washing her feet, his feet with her own tears and, and, and hair. And she's there, kneeled before Jesus in worship, showing affection, even kissing his feet. You remember the religious around the room? They looked on with disdain. How dare a woman like that come to Jesus? And how dare she act like that? And I would tell you this morning, that's the difference between religion and the gospel. That's the difference between religious onlookers and true followers who have kissed the Son. How could you stand at a distance when you know Him as Savior, when you see Him as King? Elizabeth Elliot was a young missionary in Ecuador, serving alongside her husband uh, Jim and their team with a vision to reach the Wadoni Indians in Ecuador with the gospel. An unreached tribe of uh, savage uh, indigenous people, if you will. And in January of 1956, the team tried to make initial contact with this tribe. And in response, members of this violent tribe savagely killed her husband Jim and four of his colleagues. Incredibly, Elizabeth took their toddler daughter and the rest of the things that she had, her snakebite kit, her Bible, her journal, and stayed lived in the jungle with the very people who killed her husband. Compelled by this amazing uh, show of friendship and forgiveness, many came to faith in Jesus. But you know why she was able to do that? Because she had some guiding questions in her life. For Elizabeth, the central question was not, how does this make me feel? But simply, is this true? And then the follow-up question was, what do I need to do about it then to obey God? She utterly submitted to doing God's will, no matter how high the cost. She famously said, and I quote, God is God. And since He is God, He is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in His will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what He is up to. Listen, when you understand the worth and the glory and the authority of Jesus the King, submission and allegiance to Him is the only reasonable response.